We're in the book of Ruth tonight, chapter 3. The book of Ruth is a love story, and it's a law story. As a love story, it describes the courtship of Boaz and Ruth. For Boaz, it was love at first sight, when in chapter 2 he saw Ruth gleaning in his barley field and exclaimed, What young woman is this? He invited Ruth to lunch and he made arrangements for her to return to his field every day during the harvest. He sent her home with gifts of food for her and her mother-in-law. Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, recognizing Boaz's romantic intentions, said, Blessed be the one who took notice of you. And she encouraged Ruth to go forth each day and be noticed in the field belonging to Boaz. And so it's, it's a great love story. It's also a law story as it describes Boaz as Ruth's kinsman. The word kinsman or relative occurs 12 times in the book of Ruth and six of them are here in chapter 3. It's the Hebrew word goel, G-O-E-L, more commonly translated kinsman redeemer. An Israelite could sell himself, his family, or his land in cases of extreme hardship or poverty. The Goel was the nearest living male blood relative to that person. He was responsible under Jewish law to act as a redeemer of the mortgaged property and persons. He was a kinsman who could redeem what had been lost, and thus he's the kinsman redeemer. Boaz was a near relative to Ruth's deceased father and her deceased husband. He was a kinsman redeemer. It is a law story because you see him, especially in chapter 4, he'll take their courtship into court to clear the legal obstacles standing in the way of him exercising his responsibilities as a kinsman redeemer. And so the book of Ruth is this love story and law story of redemption. Seeking her love, Boaz claimed Ruth as her kinsman redeemer, and seeing his love, Ruth claimed Boaz as hers. The story ends joyfully with a baby being born in Bethlehem. But of course, that's not the end of the story. Centuries later, a descendant of Boaz and Ruth was born in Bethlehem. Great Christmas story, isn't it? He was Jesus, born in Bethlehem of the Virgin Mary. His miraculous birth made Jesus your kinsman. See, this is all so important. He was born as a man so that he could be near of kin to you and I. He becomes our kinsman redeemer, able to purchase us out of slavery to sin and death. Seeking your love, Jesus came from heaven to earth and claimed you as your kinsman redeemer. And seeing his love, you come to him and claim him. And so Ruth chapter 3 is a guide to appreciating and appropriating the love of Jesus Christ as this legal representative. And, and I really, I just love the book of Ruth. I, it's a tremendous little book, uh, often overlooked. Uh, I love it really because it tells all of this tremendous doctrine in a love story. And, it, and, and we always need to be reminded that the Lord loves us uh, in, a, in a really passionate way, not just in a theological way, not just because it's His nature to love. All of those things are true. But the Lord wants us to be reminded that he has a romantic, passionate love for us. Uh, and it's something that a lot of the ladies can relate to easily. Uh, but the men need to grab a hold of it more often. But uh, it, it's, just, it's, it's just a wonderful thing. And, and just remembering the love of God, this passionate, romantic love of God, will keep you from a lot of doctrinal, uh, uh, it'll keep you, help you avoid a lot of doctrinal error. 
Uh, because a lot of times our minds start to spin and we, we start to get into these doctrinal points and, and, and we, we forget that God wants to have a personal relationship with us. And so very important. And I, I, I really encourage you to read Ruth uh, again and again. And so Bo- Boaz first loved Ruth. He saw her gleaning in his field. He fell in love at first sight. And then he went about courting her affection in a very tender and gentlemanly way. Naomi, seeing the evidences of his love for Ruth, sent her daughter-in-law to the threshing floor to make her claim upon Boaz as her kinsman redeemer. And so, verse 1 of chapter 3, Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you, that it may be well with you? Now, Boaz, whose young women you were with, is he not our kinsman? In fact, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Therefore, wash yourself and anoint yourself. Put on your best garment and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Then it shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies. Go in, uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what you should do. And she said to her, all that you say to me, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law instructed her. Now, Ruth's behavior seems strange to us, almost forward. Uh, As a father, you, you don't really... You know, this isn't the typical prom night that you had in mind for your daughter, you know. Wait until your date has ate and drank, and when he's sleeping, uncover his feet and lay there. I mean, that, that, that doesn't work in our culture. Uh, but she was, in fact, acting according to the customs of her time. Boaz had indicated his intentions, and now it was up to Ruth to indicate her interest. The barley harvest was over, and the time for threshing and winnowing had come. Boaz had joined his laborers in the work of threshing the grain. Many citizens were gathered there with their families celebrating the bountiful harvest. They were winnowing the grain at night to take advantage of the night breeze. Winnowing involved picking up the grain with a tool after it had been tramped upon and then pitching it into the wind so that the chaff would be blown away. After the workmen had labored into the night and the wind had died down, they ate a late meal and then they slept there on and around the threshing floor to stand guard over the winnowed grain. And so this was a, a big uh, celebration, uh, a harvest celebration. There were a lot of people around. Uh, it, nothing unusual was happening. And so Ruth's coming to Boaz at night was really extremely modest. It was a public place with entire families camped there in the open. It was a perfect and discreet opportunity for her to claim him as her kinsman redeemer. And so, so I'm, I'm trying to paint a picture to you of, of just how, uh, how absolutely normal this was and, and how there was nothing forward about it. Uh, and, and so we missed so much of this because, gee, I can't remember the last time I went to the barley harvest. I just, you know, I think Gene was real little the last time we went to barley harvest and and, uh, you know, we just don't do these kinds of things and, and we tend to read our own culture into them. And seriously, I mean, when I'm reading this, if I'm uh, the father of a teenage daughter, I'm thinking this no way are you going to the barley harvest. There's some Boaz there waiting to <laughs> fall asleep, you know, and, and uh, that's just not going to happen. And so uh, you, you just be careful about that. Ruth's coming to Boaz. And so then in verse seven, and after Boaz had eaten and drunk, And his heart was cheerful. He went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain and she came softly, uncovered his feet and lay down. 
Now, one of the responsibilities of this Goel, this kinsman redeemer under the Jewish law was to marry his deceased brother's wife and raise up children with the deceased brother's name. And this is part of the Jewish culture that we uh, are glad we're not involved with, quite honestly. And uh, I mean, it's just tribal cultures are just different than the kind of cultures we grew up in. Now, we have our own strange cultural phenomena, I'm sure, you know, uh, and and so don't think that, you know, people don't look at your ethnic background and think, man, that's weird. You know, I'm glad I'm Italian. But uh, I mean, all of us have stuff. But this this tribal idea, uh, because because it was. The, the children of Israel, they were so uh, tied to the land and, and their inheritance and you couldn't let a tribe die out and you couldn't let the name die out. And, uh, you know, um, I'm always bugging my dad because he, he still, oh, still bothers us because we moved up here and we moved away from the family, la familia, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And, and uh, whenever he really gets under my skin, I say, I say Dad, you know, me and little Gene are the only hope you have of your name going forward here, you know, and stuff. Because my brothers, they're just blown it. You know, they, they, uh, they, they've had no sons. And, and so, and they're older than me. Well, I have one younger brother, but eh, it's a whole other story. But anyway, uh, there's probably no sons forthcoming other than Gene. I mean, Gene's the last hope for my dad's legacy to go on. And that's an important thing to him and, and stuff. And so, so I always pull that legacy card out, you know, when I really need it, you know, when I'm really getting browbeaten, I say, now, dad, you know, we could end this whole thing. But uh, anyway, uh, so so it was very important, this Leverite marriage, it was called, where you would you would uh, uh, marry your dead brother's wife's and then those that child would have his name and continue his inheritance. And so uh, Ruth covered herself with the corner of Boaz's long outer garment. This was a symbolic and modest way of telling Boaz that she would be willing to accept him as the Goel to take her deceased husband's place as her husband. You read of this custom in Ezekiel 16, verse 8. Let me just read it to you. God is talking about his relationship to Israel. And it says there, When I passed by you again and looked upon you, indeed your time was the time of love. So I spread my wing over you and covered your nakedness. Yes, I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you. And you became mine, says the Lord God. And so spreading your outer garment over a woman or a woman placing herself under the outer garment was an acceptable way to propose marriage or to accept a proposal of marriage. Weird to us. We don't do this kind of stuff. You know, we 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 always, you know, we get a ring and we go to a restaurant and we get down on one knee and everybody goes, you know, or we do something. We always try and come up with some fancy schmancy way of, of you know, proposing and stuff. And this was how they did it in those days from Ezekiel because there's some romantic language there. And so that's what's happening. And so verse eight says, now it happened at midnight that the man was startled and turned himself and there was a woman lying at his feet. And he said, who are you? And so she answered, I am Ruth, your maidservant. Take your maidservant under your wing, for you are a near kinsman. And then he said, Blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter, for you have shown more kindness at the end than at the beginning, in that you did not go after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you request, for all the people of my town know that you are a virtuous woman. And so they have this really wonderful encounter. Um, 
you know, some people think, well, what, you know, what's with Boaz? He does, doesn't he recognize her? And a couple of things. I mean, just for, on a practical level, I can't see anything within three or four feet without my glasses anymore. I mean, I'm so blind, you know, just, and, and so, and if I'm startled in the middle of the night, I mean, I mean, so Boaz is like, you know, and, and these guys, they didn't have glasses. They just were blind, you know, and it's nighttime and there's a woman at his feet and, you know, he's groggy uh, from celebrating and waking up and stuff. And so, but he collects his thoughts pretty quickly and he and Ruth have this conversation and they, uh, they have this transaction. And so he immediately understands her intentions. He had been courting her, but he thought she might prefer the company of the younger man and had been somewhat hesitant to impose upon her. He's really a gentleman. He wanted Ruth to be in love with him, not just be under the law with him. And that's an important point. Boaz didn't go and say, hey, according to the law, I could marry you. I could take you to be my wife. And so I'm going to go exercise my rights under the law. And there's nothing you can do about that. He decided that he would wait and see if Ruth loved him because he he obviously had uh, intentions to do this, but he wasn't going to force that. And seeing his love, Ruth came to Boaz and claimed him as her kinsman redeemer. In the same way, seeking his love, you come to Jesus and claim him as your kinsman redeemer. Boaz came to the field, saw the impoverished gleaner and loved her first. Jesus Christ came from heaven to earth, seeing the human race in its spiritual poverty and loved you first. Naomi saw the love of Boaz for Ruth and he applied it to her so that she would understand and respond to it. And just so God, the Holy Spirit, applies the love of Jesus Christ for mankind to your heart so that you can understand and respond to it. And so Naomi becomes a type in this sense of the Holy Spirit and how he operates to bring us to Jesus Christ. You know, and again, I don't want to belabor this or, or, or you know, get out of balance here, but we, we spend a lot of time thinking about these concepts of Jesus loving us first and we respond to his love and how is it that the Holy Spirit works on our heart and how does all this really work exactly? And there are people who spin out whole systems of theology uh, that, that will tell you exactly step by step by step how a person gets saved and, and, and all of these things in a very technical way. And God says, God says okay, here's, here's how I see it. I see it as a love story. And, and you just can't explain love. I mean, you just really can't. Why, how, how do you explain love? Why do you fall in love with people? And what is the, the attraction and, and the strength of it? You know, it's an amazing thing. And so Naomi, a, a type of the Holy Spirit, Boaz, a type of Christ, Ruth, a type of the believer. Once Ruth responded to the love of Boaz, she immediately assumed the role of his engaged bride to be. She washed, anointed herself and put on her best garments. Ruth was washed and anointed. When you come to Jesus Christ, you are washed clean of your sins and you're anointed as you receive the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And then on a daily basis, we go on being washed by the water of the Word of God, the cleansing power of God's Word, and we go on being anointed by His Spirit for service and ministry. So there's a lot of really wonderful analogies here in this love story. Ruth exchanged her widow's rags for her best garments. When you come to Jesus, he takes away the filthy rags of your own righteousness and replaces them with his own perfect righteousness. Ruth was instructed to present herself to Boaz and to do what he told her. After you come to Jesus, you present yourself to him in obedient service. 
Jesus is your Boaz and you are his Ruth. Seeing his love for you, you come and claim him as your kinsman redeemer and he is happy to spread his love over you and to take care of you for the rest of your life. And and so as we move into verses 12 through 18, Boaz made Ruth's response possible by loving her first. He came to her in the field, indicated his intentions to fulfill his responsibilities. He did so out of love, not just out of the law. He actually loved Ruth. And as we listen to Boaz, we learn of a legal obstacle to his intentions. However, it's verse 12. He says, now it is true that I am a near kinsman. However, there's a kinsman closer than I stay this night. And in the morning, it shall be that if he will perform the duty of a near kinsman for you, good, let him do it. But if he does not want to perform the duty for you, then I will perform the duty for you as the Lord lives Lie down until morning. And so, as Boaz says, there's a kinsman closer in relation than Boaz. And under the law, this other man had first rights at redeeming his deceased brother's property. And he had the first responsibility to marry Ruth and raise up an heir to his deceased brother's inheritance. Most of chapter 4 is going to be occupied with Boaz overcoming this legal obstacle because he loves Ruth and he doesn't to him. It's more than a responsibility or, or a right. It's, it's something that he wants to do and he wants to get this other guy out of the way. Uh, and when we look at chapter four, we'll see what this other kinsman represents. He represents the law of God, which offers mankind redemption if the law is kept perfectly. But the law is an obstacle to redemption since no one can keep the law perfectly, so no one can ever be redeemed from their sin by living under the law. And like Boaz, Jesus clears you of the legal obstacle so that he can act as your kinsman redeemer. Now, we all understand this, don't, don't we, that you cannot keep God's law, not in any part of it, uh, because it's all from the heart, it's all internalized, and, and you know... There are people who think that they are generally good. I didn't. How many of you saw the special last night, How to Get to Heaven, or Is There a Heaven, or something like that? I didn't get to see it. I wouldn't have watched it anyway, but I didn't get to see it, but I was sleeping. But uh, I saw some excerpts from it. I'm sure some of it was good and some of it wasn't. But the gist of it, I know, because I, I talked to my wife, she'd watch it. The gist of it was, if you're a generally good person, you're probably going to be okay, wherever heaven is and whatever heaven is. It might be... Yeah, I know they talked to the Dalai Lama and he was very charming and, you know, they talked about reincarnation, coming back as an animal, if, you know, you might be coming back as a mean animal if you're a mean person and all that kind of stuff. And they talked to Richard Gere, who's an expert on these things, and uh, he's been leaving clues in each of his movies, uh, you know, no, I'm just kidding. But anyway... And, and they talked to some, uh, they talked to an evangelical and they talked to an atheist and all that. But the, the gist of it is what, what everybody believes, if I'm generally a good person, if I'm better than bad, then, then I'm going to be okay. God's going to make an allowance for me. And uh, God says, well, here, here's, here's the law. Here's the Ten Commandments. Uh, have you kept those? And, uh, and Jesus made it clear when he was here that no one's kept those and no one can. Uh, because... He said, maybe you haven't murdered somebody. Golly gee whiz, have you ever been angry enough with somebody that you wanted to kill them? And uh, when you say yes, he says, oh, well, then you've murdered them in your heart, and so you're guilty of the law. You're guilty of the whole law. 
and, and you're condemned. And even if you could begin to keep the law from a certain point forward, you've already broken the law. And, and even if you never broke the law in your entire life, you're born a sinner anyway with sin imputed to you. It's already in your account when you're, when you're born. And so you're in real trouble. And so it's a, there, the law is a legal obstacle because it has to be kept, but you can never keep it. And so Jesus, your Boaz, he comes and he removes that obstacle so that by keeping it himself and perfectly fulfilling it, the only one who ever could or did, so that he can cancel out its requirements on your behalf and then say, now you can come to me and be saved in me because I've taken that responsibility for you. You're not under the law. And that's why we're so sensitive about not wanting people to put us under the law. And they say, well, wait a minute, don't you keep the Ten Commandments? God keeps them through you as you love Him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Because of the drive of that love and the passion of that love, you find yourself not murdering people and not committing adultery and not lusting after their property and coveting their goods. And you know, you, you find yourself not cursing God and taking His name in vain and having idols because of this love. And, and, and that's how we live. And that's what this story is showing us. And we'll see more of that in chapter 4. But back to verse 14. So she lay at his feet until morning, and she arose before one could recognize another. And then he said, Do not let it be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he also said, Bring the shawl that is on you and hold it. And when she held it, he measured six ephahs of barley and laid it on her, and she went into the city. So when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, Is that you, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her. And she said, These six ephahs of barley he gave me, for he said, Do not go empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Then she said, Sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out, for the man will not rest until he has concluded the matter this day. And so Boaz gave Ruth a generous measure of barley, and it was a token of his sincerity. It, it meant what he had begun, he would finish. He would clear this legal obstacle and fulfill his responsibility as her kinsman redeemer. And, um, you know, it, it just, I like when she says he's not going to rest until this matter is settled. You ever, you ever uh, I mean, this is love, you know, you just, you, you just aren't at rest ever when you're in love, you know, especially the initial stages of, of the craziness of love. You know, when you first are in love with somebody and you, you would you don't sleep and you don't eat and, and you just it, you're just you can't rest until you are with the person and then and then until you get back with them. And it's, it's just that's what Boaz is kind of going through now that he knows Ruth is willing to take him. And so so Naomi says wisely, hey, just you might as well rest because he's going to have to bring this matter to a conclusion at this point. Now, we've been talking a lot about this kinsman redeemer. I want to read to you the passages that describe the person. They're from Leviticus 25 and Deuteronomy 25. I'll just read them to you. It's Leviticus 25, beginning in verse 23. It says, The land shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine, for you are strangers and sojourners with me. By the way, this is one reason why uh, this, uh, the Iranian plan to move the Jews to Europe now is not going to work because God owns the land uh, and gave it to them and it's really their land. Have, are you familiar with the plan? The, you know this guy, I forget his name in Iran. What's his name? Anyway, 
He's, this guy's running Iran now. He's this radical Muslim guy. And, and he's been going around talking about how he wants Israel wiped out. And the international community listens to this and no one seems to really be too offended by this. And uh, so uh, they've been, the news people have been trying to give him an out. You know how it's, it's, sometimes people say something and then they ask it again because they think, man, if you really mean that, you're going to lose your job, you know. And Jimmy the Greek went through this years ago. He made some racial slur and then they asked him, now, did, is that what you mean? He goes, yeah, you know, and they fired him, you know. And so, and so they give these people, so they're giving this guy a chance. So he clarified his position the other day. This has been about a week ago now. He's clarified his position. He says, and it's really fascinating. He says, he says, look, I don't believe there was a Holocaust in Europe. But if there was, so this is the foundation. He says, if there was, then Europe owes the Jews. And so they should make a state in Europe and move all of the Jews to Europe. And then they'll be out of the Middle East and the whole world will be a happy place after that. And we can all live together in harmony with our nuclear weapons and stuff like that. And so, so that's what this guy is into. And, uh, the problem with that is that it's not his land and, and it's not Europe's. I mean, it's God's land and God gave it to the Jews and it's their land. And it has real borders that are listed in the word of God. And they're there for good this time uh, until the coming of the Lord. And so uh, that's what's going on. So verse 25 or chapter 25, verse 24 of Leviticus. And in the land of your possession, you shall grant redemption of the land. If one of your brethren becomes poor and has sold some of his possession, and if his kinsman redeemer comes to redeem it, then he may redeem what his brother sold. Now, if a sojourner or a stranger close to you becomes rich, and one of your brethren who dwells by him becomes poor and sells himself to the stranger or sojourner close to you or to a member of the stranger's family, after he is sold, he may be redeemed again. One of his brothers may redeem him, or his uncle or his uncle's son may redeem him, or anyone who is near of kin to him and his family may redeem him. Or if he is able, he may redeem himself. And then in Deuteronomy it says, If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as his wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And so these laws, they're based on the principle that God owns the land he gave to Israel by right of creation. If you're wondering how does God own the land, well, he created it. And so it was his. He holds the initial title, we would say, and he grants it down. Uh, they, Israel are stewards of the land and could not finally dispose of it as they saw fit. The land was to remain in the family that God originally gave it to. By providing for a kinsman redeemer, God saw to it that the land never passed out of its original ownership. It'd be like, I guess... I, mean, I haven't thought it through, but it'd be like my house, I'd have to sell it to somebody in my family. And they would have to sell it to somebody in our family so that, you know, I mean, some of you, you think, oh yeah, the family house. You know, you remember the house you grew up in generation after generation. But this is something more than that. This is, you can't sell it to the guy next door. I mean, you can't sell it to anybody but a close family member because that's your land, your house. And, and that's what's going on here. Very different than the way we think for the most part, the, the way most of us think. And so, by providing the kinsman redeemer married the deceased brother's widow, God ensured also that no family would ever cease. So the ownership of the land would never cease. It would always be in that, that uh, as it was originally divvied up by Joshua. 
And then the, the particular tribe would never cease because of this process of Leverite marriage. And so from these passages, you derive at least four important criteria about the kinsman redeemer. He must be a near kinsman. He must himself be free from any legal entanglements, obviously. He must be able to pay the price of redemption and possess the ability to redeem. Boaz met all of these criteria as he stepped in to redeem Ruth. Anyone who would act as a kinsman redeemer must meet all of them. God sees the whole human race, obviously, as needing redemption. When you redeem something or someone, you buy back by paying a price. Romans 7.14 describes you as sold as a slave to sin. And so you and I are born into this life subject to the dominion and curse of sin, a slave to Satan and death, and in need of a real redeemer. Your redeemer, though, must meet those criteria that God set forth. He must be a near kinsman. He must be free from any legal entanglement. He must have the price required and he must possess the ability to redeem you. Jesus Christ and only Jesus Christ meets all four of those. Uh, And and that's, you know, people, uh, you know, when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and life, no one comes to the Father but by me. There's a lot in that statement. Uh, And this is helping us to understand that. Because we're sold into slavery of sin. We need a kinsman, so he must be a man. And so God had to become a man to do this. He has to be free from any legal entanglements. In other words, he had to live a perfect life. That's why another man can't redeem you. No other man can be your savior. Uh, He must have the price, which would be the precious blood of Jesus Christ, and possess the ability to do it. And so Jesus is his Uh, is your redeemer. He became a man, took upon himself human flesh. He did this at his incarnation that he might redeem you. Obviously, he's free from any legal entanglements. You're condemned by God's law, but he is the one who fulfills the law. I love Dr. J. Vernon McGee. How many of you are familiar with Dr. McGee and listen to his stuff? I love that guy. He says this. He goes, it's very obvious, but I like the way he puts it. He says, a drowning man is in no position to rescue someone else who is drowning. A man who rescues people who are in a sinking ship cannot himself be in that sinking ship. The lifeline must be thrown from someone who is in a place of safety. And so to redeem you, a person would have to himself have first perfectly kept God's law and owe no debt to God. Jesus in his life on earth perfectly kept God's law. He said of himself, don't think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I didn't come to destroy them, but to fulfill them. In every point, Jesus was perfect. He alone stands to redeem. When he throws the spiritual lifeline to some sinking soul, he is able to rescue for he stands upon the vantage point of having lived a perfect life of holiness before God. And he has that price, as I mentioned, of your redemption, uh, the legal amount necessary to provide for deliverance. God says in his word that the price of redemption from sin is blood. In Leviticus it says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, And I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. It is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Uh, God called for the shedding of blood to atone for sin. Obviously, the blood of animals was a temporary situation. It's the blood of a man, a kinsman, who is satisfactory to God, who is willing to pay with his blood the price required. The problem is that no man will qualify because no man is holy. And that's where God quite literally stepped in uh, and became a man so that he could redeem mankind. And so 
All of these things. You know, the more you study God's word, the simpler it gets, but the more you see everything fits in together. You, you can't just you can't start taking out doctrines here and there. You, you know, there are these liberal Christians or liberals who consider themselves Christians. I, I don't know where you draw the line. Who, you know, it doesn't matter if you believe in the virgin birth. It doesn't matter if you believe in the resurrection. And you know, when you start taking these things away, you lose all of these beautiful analogies. You you lose all of the substance of it. Of course, it matters. I mean, all of the things that God says in his word matter. And, 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 and Jesus had to become a man. He had to be born of a virgin. He had to die. He had to be raised from the dead bodily. All of this is critical to whether or not you're actually saved. Twenty-one times the Bible identifies the precious blood of Jesus as satisfying the price of redemption. Peter says, "...you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold." from your conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish and without spot. And so Jesus alone possesses the ability to redeem the human race, and it involves purchasing back what was originally sold or lost. What we originally lost in the Garden of Eden when Adam sinned was eternal life in the presence of God. Only our Lord can restore us to that. In His resurrection from the dead, He is called the firstfruits of them that sleep. Because He rose, you and I will one day rise and enjoy eternity and be restored to the estate that was lost by Adam but regained by Jesus. And so, in order to meet these criteria, this person would have to be God come in human flesh, live a perfect sinless life on earth, die a substitutionary death on the cross, and then rise from the dead. And that's exactly what Jesus did. And that's why there is salvation in no other name and no other place. Seeking your love... Jesus came and claimed you as your kinsman redeemer. And so the book of Ruth is this love story and law story of your redemption. As a law story, you see how Jesus fulfills the legal requirements necessary to redeem you as your near kinsman. As a love story, you see Jesus seeking your love, coming from heaven to earth, claiming you as the kinsman redeemer. And so, uh, you know, I think more and more we want to hold those two things in a, in a real, not so much a balance, but in a harmony. You know, that, that, there, that there's plenty of law to go around, but it's all in the context of God's love for you. A great love, a marvelous love, the greatest love story ever told. Let's pray together. Father, we're so grateful that you love us. And um, Lord, we don't even really fully comprehend the, the depth and the breadth of that love. We thank you for pictures like these in the book of Ruth. We, all of us can understand the love of a man for a woman and vice versa and the the passion of uh, engagement and all of those kinds of things. And it's really kind of humbling, Lord, to think that you love us in that way with a jealous, passionate love. Uh, but at the same time, Lord, when we first got saved and maybe even tonight still, we have that great love for you. And, and yet so often, Lord, we're, we're hesitant to, to really express it or to talk about it. We, we'd rather talk about academic things or intellectual things that they seem easier to express and easier to understand. Uh, Lord, we don't want to ever lose those things or, or lack uh, being studious and, and scholarly, Lord. But at the same time, we don't want to lose the sense of, of the mystery of the romance of your love for us. Any more than in our marriages, we want to become uh, dry and, and shriveled up, Lord. But we want to maintain that which is passionate and loving. And so I, I thank you for the images. I pray that they would be more than images and analogies. I Pray that they would be uh, exhortations to us, Lord, to remain or to return to our first love with you. 
knowing that you've never moved, Lord, that, that you love us as much as you ever did from eternity past to eternity future. And that if there's any lack of love or leaving love, Lord, it's been on our part. Lord, as we head into uh, the Christmas weekend, uh, provided that you don't rapture us, Lord, we, we want to have a, a, a wonderful time celebrating your birth. Lord, we don't know if you were born on December 25th or not. Now, some people say yes, some people say no. We don't really care. Uh, you were born and we want to celebrate it and this is the time that we've chosen to do it in our culture. Uh, Lord, we want to be able to proclaim your birth to our family and friends and all those who will listen. Uh, we, we pray that uh, we would enjoy the spirit of this season, Lord. Uh, the, the, the spirit of worship really is what it is because when you were born, uh, the angels worshipped and the shepherds worshipped and Mary and Joseph worshipped and uh, all those, Lord, who really knew what was going on worshipped you. And they looked forward, Lord, to the fact that you were born to be the Savior of the world. It was a time of looking forward from Christmas to the crucifixion and a time of understanding your, the entirety of your life and what you came to do. And so I pray that we would hold all that together. Lord, when, when we gather with family, you'd bless us. When we gather as a family, Saturday and Sunday, you would bless us with a sense of your presence. And may this be the most joyous Christmas in our memory, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name and everyone said, Amen.